realize that theology is the queen of sciences? Do you realize that all science does point to God as the creator, ultimately? And all these sciences we can use as apologetic defenses. It's an amazing concept that we can see the natural world, use logic and reason, and show people who God is and that there really is a God. Now, the problem that I don't really see is like really atheism anymore. That's more of like a neo-atheism. You see a lot of spiritism, people involved in various spiritual activities, which is interesting because now you have the virgin birth. Now, the virgin birth is in two accounts. It's in Matthew and Luke, Matthew 1, 18 to 25, and Luke chapter 1, 21 to 25. We're not going to go through both accounts. We're only going through Matthew's account. You're welcome because we'll be here till midnight. If we were to do that properly, it would at least be a three-part series just on the virgin birth. I really don't want to do that to you guys. I like you too much. So... I am going to read uh, Matthew's account, starting in verse uh, 18, and we're going to go to 25. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go through the various nuances. I not I did not hit every single point of the virgin birth in regards to Matthew, because once again, we'll be here till midnight. So starting in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came to, uh, together. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, because what would the public example be? Huh? Stoning. Was minded to put her away secretly but while he was he thought about these things behold an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream saying joseph son of david do not be afraid take to you mary your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the holy spirit and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. As we dive into the study today, so it's going to be more of like a topical study, so we're not going through line by line, verse by verse, but we're going to do a topic. So, what is the virgin birth? This is the definition. Definition of virgin birth. The virgin birth is a doctrine. Now, this has been a bad word in Christian circles. The word doctrine means teaching. So, 
we want doctrine. This is important because this is why you have so many whacked out various forms of what we call, quote, unquote, Christianity. They don't hold to the mainline doctrines, this being one of them. And we're going to go over what they say, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, um, towards the end of our message. So the birth, virgin birth is the doctrine that Christ did not have a biological father, but rather was conceived by the Holy Spirit miraculously in the womb of Mary. That is the virgin birth. So we have to look at a presupposition. Okay. So when we study the Bible, we have to look at this thing called context. So there's various forms of context. So the first one would be a worldview context, which has three subcategories. Religious context, cultural context, and historical context. And then when you pop out of the worldview context, you have linguistic and then literary context. So we have to go through the cultural and religious context here because we need a presupposition. What were they thinking, the readers of the scripture? Only in a certain context, of course, could this position be held. Both the scriptures and the believers assumed, they assumed the supernatural. God was no myth. He was the sovereign transcendent being who was also the creator. He who made man in the beginning could accommodate to him and to communicate with him. The early Christians saw no problem in a God who acts and speaks and redeems. In the context of scripture and the faith of a regenerate and spirit-filled church, the virgin birth of Christ was no more unthinkable than the other three ways by which people have come into the world. Adam with neither a father nor a mother. Eve from Adam's side and others from both a father and a mother. So those are the three ways. See, God was utterly real. His acts and words were in fact in truth. So you have Gnostics. Understand Gnosticism comes from the word, the Greek word gnosis, to know. So it's a variety of uh, second century A.D. religions whose participants believe that people could only be saved through revealed knowledge, the gnosis. You see a lot of Gnosticism right now. You have, say, Docetism, a theological outlook in early Christian period that maintained that Jesus did not take on a physical body. So they didn't believe that he was incarnate, meaning that he lived. And then pagans. So paganism is those who worship a god or gods other than the living God to whom we worship in the Bible. Just so we have context. And unconverted Jewish people did not always share this context of faith. Therefore, they did not share the Christian belief in an actual incarnation of the virgin birth, but the belief survived in Orthodox Christianity. So that's the presupposition. This is what they're dealing with at the time. So now we have the fact. The fact, the gospel accounts are not presented as myths, legends, didactic devices, or noic uh, 
patterns of, uh, to popularize Christianity to the naive masses. So, why would we, as Christians, make up a whole bunch of stuff just to try to prove the validity of our faith? That makes no sense, right? Typically, when you argue, you argue with what? Facts. So about the facts. It would have been easy for the apostles and the early Christians to just denounce all this stuff because it would have saved them a lot of heartache and a lot of pain because what happened to a lot of the early believers in the first 300 years of Christianity? They were martyred. You understand, the first 300 years of Christianity was a death sentence. They found out you were a Christian, you didn't worship Caesar. <laughs> and they used to play games with you, throw you into the Colosseum with a bunch of animals, like lions, and to tear you to pieces in front of a bunch of people. Or they just executed you, crucified you, beat you multiple times, whatever the case may be. So don't you think it would be easier to be like, hey, yeah, you know what? I was lying about the whole thing. Do you realize in interrogations when a lie comes out, they just like, they spill everything? They held to the faith. So they purport a state of factuality and data need to solve a crucial problem in the minds of believers. How could Jesus, a man, be the son of God and savior? The two parts of the explanation occur in the gospels that the early church considered the earliest. The report was accepted as factual. The explanations were not repeated in later works. Before long, no one was baptized into the faith without expressing faith in the virgin birth of Christ. In the earliest literature, the fact that the virgin birth is defended as both true and fundamental to the faith. Now, this is important. I'll show you why. It's not contended that God could not have sent the Savior in any other way. It is simply affirmed on the basis of Scripture that this is how he did it. The virgin birth is consistent with the other great facts of the redemption in a way that no other explanation is. Consistent orthodoxy demands the virgin birth. As pointed out even by the controversial scholar... Charles A. Briggs. Now, Charles Augustus Briggs was a Presbyterian minister, a Civil War veteran, and a seminary professor. He started studying in Berlin. He denied the inerrancy of Scripture and the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of Moses. And denies biblical inerrancy. So, by the way, he was also convicted for heresy kicked out of the Presbyterian church and joined the, uh, the Episcopal church. So even this guy, this is what he says, undoubtedly the divinity of Christ is the most essential doctrine. The incarn incarnation is secondary to this. And the virgin birth of a third doctrine. The so it's a third grade of importance. I have already recognized that a man may doubt or deny the third without his 
in his own mind, denying the second or the first. And yet, from a historic and dogmatic point of view, he surely has put himself in an undeniable, uh, untenable position, which he cannot maintain. Historically and logically, the divinity of Christ and incarnation are bound up with the virgin birth. And no man can successfully maintain any one of them without maintaining them all. From a guy that was called a heretic. So, those of us who are not heretics, we should hold to the virgin birth. So now, we go through our points now. We have the biblical basis of the virgin birth. So we're going to start, actually, in Mark. Mark 6.3, the biblical basis of the virgin birth. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Notice, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Typically at this time, you were always identified by your father's name, never your mother's. So the townspeople called him the son of Mary. It may have been a derogatory remark. I think it was. While it may have been true that Joseph already died, in any normal situation, Jesus would still be called the son of Joseph. But Jesus was conceived prior to Joseph and Mary's wedding. So while they were engaged, you saw that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And perhaps the townspeople saw Jesus as not even being Joseph's son. So they saw him as a bastard child. It's pretty derogatory, don't you think? In John, we're going to use the New English translation on this one. You people are doing the deeds of your father. Then they said to Jesus, we were not born as a result of immorality. See, I think this translates it the best. We have only one father, God himself. He's saying that Mary had sexual relations prior to her wedding day. I don't know about you. That's pretty offensive. Now they're talking to the Son of God. It's pretty bad. So this may have been, like, been a sarcastic suggestion that Jesus was illegitimate. And it's ironic because Jesus' opponents applied, uh, implied that it was not themselves but Jesus who had been born as a result of immoral behavior. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This points to his incarnation. So now we start getting even to the hypostatic union perspective. So remember we talked about the hypostatic union. Fully man, fully God. So now we already see him as born of a woman. And in Hebrews 7.3, there's nothing highlighted here because it's in the entire thing. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but 
made like a son of God, remains a priest continually. See, the author of Hebrews at the time, he shows the awareness of Jesus' miraculous birth when comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, who was without father and without mother. Jesus also does not have a priestly lineage. Which tribe was he from? The tribe of Judah, not Levi. You see that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. And But God appointed him as a high priest in Hebrews 5.5. 5. So now we go back to Matthew. A child from the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the various events. So you have the conception and naming in Matthew 1, 22 to 23. Now, here's the Old Testament scripture that supports this. We will be only going through Isaiah 7, 14, because we'll be here for a really long time if we did the other stuff. So you automatically see prophecies being fulfilled. How many prophecies were fulfilled from the Old Testament to the New Testament about Jesus Christ? I know there's a guy studying apologetics in here. Behind, uh, between 300 and 350, because I know there's an argument on it. But that's good. That was good. I liked it. Over 300. You can always argue, argue with that one. That was good, though. So we have a few. Now, the conception and the naming, you have the birth in Bethlehem in 2, 5 through 6, the flight to Egypt, and, and the slaughter of innocents in uh, 2, 17 to 18. But you see all these are predicted prior to it. This shows, gives you the apologetic argument. This is the apologetic for it. Because now you start seeing Jesus, he was foretold and then he became and fulfilled. So Matthew 1, 22, uh, to 23 and then Isaiah 7, 14. So look, if you look at Isaiah 7, 14 right away, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold! A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew. Matthew was a Jewish man, correct? So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So now we're going to break this down. In Isaiah 7, 14, you see the concept of virgin here. The Hebrew word is Alma, which refers generally to a young woman. It actually refers specifically to a maiden. That is, to a young woman who is unmarried and sexually chaste. Now, this is an interesting concept because literally, if you look at any commentaries, right, any academic commentaries, you have one side saying, no, it doesn't refer to a virgin. The other half says, yes. I'm going to give you the example here of why. Because if you look at the Greek Old Testament, right, which is called the, the Septuagint, the Septuagint translated Alma, by the ambiguous Greek word parthenos, which can only mean a virgin. So the, Greek, the 
the Jewish rabbis who translated this translated it as a virgin. Then, in the New Testament, Alma, Parthenos, which is virgin, when it was quoted from uh, Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew 1.23. So Matthew was what? A Jewish man, right? He understood Jewish concepts, right? They all went to Hebraic schools. They all memorized scripture. So he knew this and translated it this way. It's really interesting now, right? So that kind of squashes the other argument. So now we go back to Isaiah 7, 14. Shall call his name Emmanuel. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us in Matthew 1.23. It refers to Christ's deity. This is why this is so very important. We need to understand the virgin birth. Because you right away in the virgin birth, you literally see the incarnation and you see the divinity of Jesus Christ. So once it's called the hypostatic union. Now we have the biblical basis of the virgin birth here. And we go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the first prophecy about Jesus Christ. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is this called? Does anyone know the, the geeky term on it? It's called the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. This is the first messianic prophecy and declares that the Messiah's line will be after a woman, not a man. Normally, descendants are traced through their father, Genesis 5 and 11. So the legal descendant, national and tribal um, identity were always taken from the father, never from the mother. Even the official genealogy of Jesus' Messiah in Matthew chapter 1 is traced through his legal stepfather, Joseph. Showing Jesus being born of the seed of a woman implies the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So now we're going to go through the creeds. Now I know that here at Calvary Chapel we don't do creeds. But I think they're important. People think they're antiquated. I say not. So the word creed comes from the Latin word credo. Which means, I believe. Interesting that our last song talked about I believe. So it's an authoritative statement of main articles of the Christian faith to which believers are expected to agree with. See, broadly speaking, biblical religion has always been creedal. Do you not say we believe in the virgin birth? Do you not Believe in Jesus' divinity? Do you believe in the crucifixion, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ? Do you believe in creation, creationism? So biblical and post-biblical Judaism confess Yahweh's absolute unity, even, and the uniqueness by the Shema. The Shema means to hear. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, which is very what? Creedal. 
See, a lot of people look at creeds and like, well, that's antiquated stuff. That's what, you know, the high churches do. And the high churches are like the Presbyterian church. They call them high churches because they do what is called things called liturgy, right? And they repeat the Apostles' Creed over and over and over, right, Mike? <laughs> over. We both preach at a Presbyterian church, and you just like, wow. Just say the same thing over and over. Now, the bad thing is that you just repeat it over and over. The good thing is it gives you a lot of good doctrine. Very much like our worship is doctrinal. Supposed to be theological in nature. You're not supposed to just feel good. It's supposed to be correct. So that's why I do like creedal statements because of things like this. So now we go through the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he arose again from the dead. The Nicene Creed in 325 AD. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God. That's interesting, God from God. I kind of want to stay here for a moment. Now, the word that when they use begotten, and um, specifically in the New King James, the King James, and some other translations, was his only begotten son. The word is monogenes, which means only unique kind. So how many unique kinds of God can you have? That's it. Only one unique kind. So God begot God, the only unique kind of God. Light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, Mary and be, uh, became truly human. Kind of crushes docetism, doesn't it? The Chalcedonian Creed in 451 A.D. Following then the Holy Fathers, we unite in teaching all men to confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This self-same one is perfect, both in deity and in humanness. Before time began, he was begotten of the Father in respect of his deity. And now, in these last days, for us and behalf of our salvation, this self-same one was born of Mary the Virgin, who is God-bearer in respect in his humanness. <clears throat> so, she was the God-bearer. He was fully human. He was God. So once again, you always go back to the incarnation. You go back to the hypostatic union. You see his virgin, the virgin birth. You see all these things consistently. These are essential doctrines to our faith. And for us to understand the essential doctrines of the faith, we must understand the basics. If we don't have the basics, then what do we have? If we don't follow the proper doctrines, we start to go thinking about really bad stuff. And we're going to see what they say.
even the crazy ones. So, for, so first we're going to start with the Quran. You wouldn't think the Quran actually talks about the virgin birth, but it does. It actually talks about Jesus performing miracles and being sinless also. I'm going to give you my little uh, Muslim apologetic in just a moment. <laughs> so this is what the Quran says in Surah 19, 16 to 22. And who thought I was going to be quoting the Quran today, right? So she placed a screen to screen herself from them. Then we sent her our angel, and he appeared before her as a man in all respects. She said, I seek refuge from thee to Allah, most gracious. Come not near. If thou dost fear Allah, he said, nay, I am only a messenger from thy Lord to announce it's interesting how Muslims really, really stole a lot from the Bible. Just saying. To thee, the gift of, the, of a holy son, she said. How shall I have a son, seeing that no man has touched me? And I am not unchaste. He said, so it will be. Thy Lord saith. This is Arabic, by the way. No. The Lord saith, that is easy for me, and we wish to appoint him as a sign unto men and a mercy from us. It is a matter so decreed. So she conceived him, and she retired with him to a remote place. Muslims say he was born of a virgin. Now understand... The Islamic faith believes in what's called replacement theology. They believe that they replace Christians. Because Muhammad was a polytheist. He believed in many God at first. And then he went to monotheism because he was in a cave one day. And supposedly the angel Gabriel choked him three times. First he thought it was demon. I say his first thought was true. I know that was cold, but I think it was true. So this maintains that Jesus indeed was born of a virgin. His birth without a human father was a sign to the world of Jesus' prophetic status. The Quran does not develop the idea theologically. And while Islam affirms this miraculous occurrence, the religion criticized the notion of Allah having a son. Uh, the breathing uh, of Gabriel on Mary is generally believed to be the means whereby God's spirit entered Mary in order for Jesus to be conceived. Notably, Islam does not attempt to define or explain what or who this spirit is. Interesting, right? The Muslims say that. Um, I promised you I was supposed to give you my apologetic, right? So this is interesting. You have Jesus being born of a virgin. He was sinless and performed miracles. Now, do you know, in the Quran, it says that Muhammad performed no miracles. And he was a sinner. So my immediate uh, question to someone said, would you follow the sinner who performed no miracles or the sinless miracle worker? I had one man, know what he said to me? He says, I'm not going to answer that. And he walked straight away from me. Because he understood it was true. Who would you choose? The sinner or the sinless? Well, obviously, sinless. This is why, like, as a side note, 
we as Christians don't follow other Christians. We follow Christ. We are to be imitators of Christ. So when people say, I don't like Christians, they're hypocrites. I say, yes, they are hypocrites. But we don't follow Christians, we follow Christ. The reason why we're hypocrites is because we have a sin nature. We're prone to sin. We're fallen. For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? So, now we go to Jehovah's Witnesses. So what did Jehovah's Witnesses say? The Jehovah's Witness accept that Mary was a virgin at the conception of Jesus, but do not accept his eternal divine nature as God of the God, the Word. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, we believe, in our translations, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The New World Translation, which is the translations that the Jehovah's Witnesses use, it automatically puts to Jesus as a God. Your immediate question is, do you believe in multiple gods? That's your immediate question right after that. They get all flustered after that one. See, rather they believe that the virgin birth was a transitional uh, phase of the process by which Michael the archangel became God's son, Jesus. Now, there have been theologians, orthodox theologians, that believe that Jesus was the archangel Michael in the past. John Calvin being one of them and also John Wesley. In John Calvin's commentary, he says, this is something I do not disagree with. Implying he agrees with it. But I obviously disagree with that. The archangel Michael and Jesus are two separate. Uh, Michael is a created being. Jesus is the creator of all things. So further what they say. In the parlance of the watchtower movement, God transferred the life force of Michael from heaven into Mary's womb. He willingly submitted as God transferred his life from heaven to the womb. The watchtower, uh, now this came from the Watchtower uh, Bible Society, Track Society. Uh, knowledge that leads Jesus was not therefore God in the flesh, the divine Son of God, but the glorified Spirit, Son of God. So they believe that born of a virgin, right? Here's what the Mormons say. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS. If you ever hear LDS, that's what it means. Also reconstructs the virgin birth. While the Book of Mormon texts highlight the teaching that Mary did conceive by the power of the Holy Ghost and bring forth a son, Alma 710, uh, and contemporary spokesmen reaffirm this concept. Other interp um, interpretations emerged within Mormonism. One is the notion that Jesus was conceived in the first instance as a pre-mortal spirit son of God in the pre-mortal realm. I'm telling you, if you have to do an, this much intellectual or psychotic gymnastics, it's probably not true. That he was conceived again in this world as a mortal human by and through the person of Mary. So Bingham Young, an early leader in the Latter-day Saints Church, denied that the Holy Ghost was an instrument of conception. 
So Bruce McConkie, a Mormon apostle and theologian, commented, Christ was begotten by the immortal Father in the same way the mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. Others have similarly suggest the literal sexual union between God and Mary. The body, Jesus's, was seared by the same Holy Spirit. Um, we worship as God, our eternal Father. So if you notice, there's various views, but many of them do hold to a virgin birth. So we, now we have God, a fully human, fully God. Uh, uh, Jesus, fully human, fully God. So the virgin birth is revealed truth in the true scriptures. And this is where it comes from because now we have this, this hard concept, right? We have something that doesn't usually happen on an everyday basis. We have the virgin birth. We have Jesus being fully God and fully man. We have God literally being born into humili- uh, he was humiliated throughout his, his entire life in, in, in the sense that he was humbled. And then he went to the cross to die of our sins. So Jesus Christ, God's son, had to be free from sinful nature to pass on all other human beings by Adam. So he had to be sinless in order for, a, for him to die on the cross. So that's why he was born of a virgin. <clears throat> because Jesus was born of a woman, he was a human being. But as the Son of God, Jesus was born without any trace of human sin. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. The infinite, unlimited God took on the limitations of humanity. So he could live and die for the salvation of all who believe in him. So I know Pastor Jay was going like an hour and a half one day. We're going to cut it really short today so you can just do your discussion and we can have a little fun afterwards. But your discussion questions today are, why is the virgin birth important to our Christian faith? And how does it affect your faith? So break up into about um, four or five people um, and then discuss these questions. Thank you. No applause. <laughs>